Butterfly, butterfly, pretty butterfly. When I see you flap your wing, I know when it's time for spring. Butterfly, butterfly, pretty butterfly. Welcome back to Honest Participants Only, a podcast that is meant to be honest, relatable, and just fabulous, really. Uh, today, we've got Dr. Marie Claude in the studio with us. Um, I say us, it's just me, really, but I am so excited to have this conversation. We're having the conversation in honour of Black History Month, uh, but we're doing it a little bit differently. We're going to do something called Creating Black History. And the reason we're going to be doing that is because we want to make sure that the history we're creating today um, is something that future generations can look back on. So when they have their Black History celebrations, we want them to be able to say, these people, these communities, these trailblazers made a difference. So, hello, Mary Claude. Hey, hi, Shay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It really means a lot to be here because for you to invite me, it's special. Thanks. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad to have you here. I'm going to start off with the accolades because we want to get those out the way, right? Um, in the sense that this is you. So you're multi-award winning, winning, I can't say it, multi-award winning insights expert, female founder, specialist in diversity, inclusion and equality, de dedicated to making organisations more inclusive. However, I know that you're way more than that. I know that you're dedicated to improving the lives of a range of communities, your own, right. mine, you know, so much more than that. So give us a tiny bit of... I guess that's the, that's the LinkedIn. Yeah, that's exactly where I got it from. So. so for LinkedIn, it's about making organizations more inclusive. In my life, it's about making life feel better and, and increasing opportunities for more people and just using whatever skills, experience I have to try and address inequalities because I... I know that this is not serving anybody, even the people who are benefiting from these inequalities. Actually, I don't think it's serving anybody particularly well, certainly not the more vulnerable people within that. So to the audience, um, I want you to know that it may feel weird to have a, a white professional on the panel or not on the panel on podcast for Black History Month but everything that Mary Claude just said is exactly why we need to have this conversation um I was explaining to her before that I want people to be able to look back and understand that it wasn't just our community that were trying to make a difference um and some of the things we're going to touch on today will absolutely be about um allyship and how um people can help so today's theme is actually how can non-black people support in the writing of our history? And that's a really, really important question because we are, in our community, we can potentially be very powerless to completely write history. We all know that black history is kind of written from the perspective of the, the those in power or the victors. So what we want to do is change that narrative today and kind of impact what the future will look like okay so um as i said you are award winning your most recent award 
the MRS Impact Award. You won this award um, under one of the companies that you work for, or that you founded as well, in fact. So Versity is um, uh, an inclusive brand. And you basically, can you just tell us a tiny bit about what happened with that and why, why that happened? The award in particular. So yes. So as I said, um, inequalities bother me. And at the heart of that, I think um, ethnic and economic inequalities and health inequalities. And I just think um, something is wrong when people are having really negative experiences based on the color of their skin, their gender, things that they are, where they're born, things that are really outside of their control. So COVID-19, this project, just to give you a bit of background. So COVID-19 had uh, just started, the pandemic had started, lockdown had kicked in for about a month. And already in the news, we were getting lots of information about young people getting um, unemployed at a really fast rate, losing their work. The industries in which, where they were working were closing down, whether it's, you know, leisure, hospitality, retail, etc. Generally, because ethnic minority people in particular start at a lower base economically, especially black people and black Caribbean people within that and Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, because they start at a lower financial base, the impact of losing a chunk of their income was even greater on these families. And I thought something needed to be done about that. So I I approached an organization called the Youth Futures Foundation. That's a big kind of endowment uh, charity. Its purpose is to structure the youth employment sector so that more young people can access and keep good jobs. And I thought, well, I asked them what they were doing specifically to address ethnic inequalities in the impact of COVID-19 on young people. And they said, well, not, we know that this is a big issue. We haven't got a program of work for that. And, I, and, that. and I said, well, okay, let me put together a proposal. I did. And we did the research. But the reason we got the award is not just because this program generated really interesting insights into the, ex- the lived experiences of young people as they are going through this pandemic and how it's impacting on so many aspects of their lives. And, and it's just, it's been hard and heartbreaking for me to see that. But the award was because we, I created, I can say that, I think, a, a kind of a, a blueprint for doing more inclusive research. So this, the idea was to recruit people that were from a range of uh, ethnic minority backgrounds, mainly young people, but you were also part of this um, this project. So that as we were giving a, a voice to young people from diverse backgrounds, we were also enabling that conversation to take place by having peer-led research, basically. People with a very similar profile who could just as well have been on the other side of the table, in a sense. So that as a process worked really well and it was very i think it that it was rewarded because it was a bold thing to do but also again i knew that this pandemic was taking its toll on employment and i wanted the project to be an opportunity to give more young people a kind of a step up on the employment ladder to teach them how to do qualitative research online research uh, give them some kind of safeguarding training, just make sure that they were enabled to then become more autonomous and progress in their career in the best way I could think of in this small project. 
there were so many things. There were so so many things that you said in there that I wanted to jump on, and we'll get to them shortly. <laughs> uh, but just the fact that you were able to approach an organisation and say, actually, I see a gap. Um, this is something that I think that needs to happen, but also it's something I can help you with. Um, what made what makes you um, what's what's the question? What makes you feel that? Or what is it that makes companies listen to you? That's that's what the question is. So many different things. So you're right for one thing. You're absolutely right. In fact, I've done a similar thing with Macmillan Cancer Support, which is how our paths crossed in the first place. I approached them and I said, what are you doing about ethnic inequalities in cancer care experiences? Um, I did that for RNIB. What are you doing about public attitudes towards uh, blind people and partially sighted people? I've done that for uh, Youth Futures Foundation. You know, this is something I do. And actually, I'm very proud of the fact that every time I do that, we are finalists for one, two, three, four different awards. So it's really kind of exciting. I, I Clearly. So why? I think it's because when I approach an organization, I have really identified a need that they recognize as a need and they recognize that they haven't done anything about. So that's one thing. I think I'm tapping into an agenda that is now really recognized to be really important. I think I'm white, so I'm not scary. Um, So I don't, I can speak a radical language in a sense, but the envelope is non-threatening, right? Um, I've got a PhD from the London School of Economics, so it's kind of, I'm credible. I've got the trappings of kind of credibility, I think. And I really have done work in that space for 25 years. And and, and I am a, an expert, which doesn't mean that I can speak instead of or on behalf of. But the process I put forward is always one that is enabling people who never or rarely have a seat at the table to speak for themselves. And then I'm just packaging that in a way that makes sense for clients, right? So it's it's who I am for real. It's how people perceive me. It's the issues that I raise and the approach that I suggest. So it's, a, it's I think. You tell yeah. me, is there anything else? Have I missed anything else? No, no, no. I, I think that that sums it up really, really well. And you touched on something that I want to move on to. You said, I'm white, and so therefore, I, I can't remember the actual phrase you used, but you're, that means that you're not scary. Absolutely. And I think, you know, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. That is so true. I believe that if, if I had your experience or background, but I went in as me, I may not achieve the same outcome. Um, and I may well, I'm sure that, you know, there are lots of black professionals and I'm a black professional as well. We, we go into lots of spaces and we're able to have certain conversations, especially now since last year, since George Floyd. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things that were brought back up to the surface because let's not pretend they were brought to light. This is the everyday lived yeah. experience of my people. Um, but since then, we've probably been able to do it a little bit more. But there is this this elephant in the room that, I may not have the same power to empower my people as somebody else who is not from the community. 
Um, and that is really interesting to me. And I really appreciate you acknowledging that about yourself. That doesn't mean that obviously you don't have experience of any kind of dis discrimination or, yeah. or that kind of background. You are a woman, <laughs> a professional woman. So your your seat at the table is below, you know, middle class white men, which is sad to me because not all middle class white men are uh you know, bad or negative or stereotypical or misogynistic. But generally, this is society and how we know it to be. Um, you know, you also were married to a Muslim man. I hope you don't mind me explaining that. So yeah. your children are mixed race. And so, you know, you have all of this experience of uh, a bit of understanding of being someone or an organisation being non-inclusive. Um, and that really all matters. But what do you think? The Honestly, question... Can I just add a little something? Because I think yeah. it is important that I come from Canada and that um, the, the cultural attitudes to diversity are just really, really different. It doesn't mean there's no sexism, there's no racism, uh, you know, Islamophobia, all of these things, they still exist. There are, you know, there's a myth that, ooh, the Canadians are so open. No, <laughs> not entirely. But, oh, my God, it's a very different discourse around equality. And, you know, people are happy to pay their taxes in a way that, you know, and to, there's a, a way in which redistribution feels fair or fairer than here. So I think the Canadian experience really does make, it, make me who I am in this case. I would yeah. add that to the mix. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to actually ask you that question. I'm going to ask you what gets you... Um, out of bed in the morning what motivates you to do this type of work but I'll come back to that in just a second because the question today as we as we know is how can non-black people support in the writing of our history and fundamentally um, in the work that you're doing and in the acknowledgement of the fact that we can't do it in a silo on our own um, you know is are are there some answers to that do you think um coming from what we've just spoken about a little bit because we will visit the question again as we go through but yeah so um how can we help in writing a better history i think it's a really difficult to be honest i i think it's a really difficult situation for a lot of people like me who's we're going to assume whose hearts are in the right place, right? And who do want to do something. I have formal expertise I can bring, right? But a lot of people don't have that expertise. They just have a good heart. They want to, they can see the inequalities. They can see, they can, they've now actually understood, a lot of people have started to really understood with George Floyd's death that, that, the, that quite, an, that on the one hand, Racism can be brutal, in your face, impossible to wrap your head around, right? So that, like, we've seen that murder over nine seconds of it. So I think that shook the world's consciousness. But it's also raised awareness of something, of course, I've been talking about for 25 years and others before me, but that was not understood before, which is structural or systemic inequalities, that it's quite independently of how somebody treats you, whether they are abusive or kind, or what their attitudes are, that's, that actually, independently of individual behavior, there are structural factors that mean that some people don't have the same chances as others. So I think 
that's a really enormous um, change in the discourse that George Floyd's murder has enabled. Now, it doesn't, so that means that maybe more people like me and others want to help, want to do something. And then we're all finding ourselves, I think, in this really difficult space between being an ally and being a white savior. <laughs> you know, do we have to come in and, and save poor black people from all these experiences? What's our role? How do we navigate that? And it's quite, um, it's hard, actually. And for me, it's more about, I'm sure there are different answers to this, but for me, it's more not speaking on behalf of, but it's speaking, it's enabling other people to have a seat at the table and to speak in their own voice. And it's a little bit, I was listening to a, something about this wonderful Radio 4 show, Women's Hour, which used to be led by a man. Now, you know, I'd rather not have a man lead Women's Hour. I'm a woman, I can speak for myself. However, I'm very grateful for the man who approached the BBC and said, can we have a show about Women's Hour, you know, about women for one hour in the week? <laughs> Could we? So that to me is allyship to say, let's talk about these issues. But then to allow women to talk about their own issues is where you step out of that conversation and you let women do it, right? So that's my the way I think about helping around racial inequalities and racial justice. It's about using my expertise, my skills, my status, my power, my access in order to facilitate better conversations. Yeah. Let me ask you this then. Do you think that that ability for a man to step in and make room for, or for a white person to step in and make room for, or for an able-bodied person to step in and make room for, do you think then that that is wholly dependent on the enablers? And I'm gonna, when I say that, I mean the person with the person at the head, the power, the person in power, on their acceptance or understanding of the issue. Yeah. So if, if I say, um, you know, it it's hard to be black because the mic doesn't work for me in the same way and you're like but the mic works fine I can hear you fine it is your and I'm asking you to help me or, or I'm not asking or you see that there's a need is that dependent on your objective view that the mic is or isn't fine does that make sense um it really helps to arrive equipped with loads of data <laughs> you know it really helps to say Listen, objectively, whatever that means, right? Objectively, we have these disparities here, 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 here. And the problem you have as an organization and where I can help you is to understand why that gap is and what you can do about it. Now, whether the person cares about the gap, I can't do anything about. If that person does not care about the gap, then there's a limit and I can I can make the case all I want. Yes, people say, yeah, there's a gap, okay. 
But so I need somebody, an interlocutor within an organization who says, I care about this. And once they care for real, and that means allocating some budgets and having, you know, senior people overseeing a brief, uh, then, then change really happens. But I can't make people want more than they want. You know. So how do we get people who don't care to care? I know there's some education around this for for the community to, to take, but I, again, we've had this conversation before. I'm not sure that the, the onus should only be on the shoulders of the community because it's exhausting and traumatic. Um, it shouldn't even necessarily be on an ally like you because you are out there, you're doing the work, you have to walk the, the balance of making sure that you're not, in white savior mode or not in, you know, minimizing mode or whatever in order to get the work done and to be here. So you're hearing from both sides of the organizations, the professionals, whatever, and you're hearing from the communities and, and whatever, and you're having to combine all of that and make sure that you're meeting, you're, you're getting the right balance of that. Um, but one of the parts of that, of that, but one of the parts of that is speaking to the people in power or the people in the C-suites and the people with access to the budget or whatever and educating them on the need to care. Is that possible? How do we get people to care who don't yet care? Uh, this is where I think facts help at one level, but actually fundamentally, I think it's about empathy. It's not just a rational understanding. It's, um, it's bringing, do you remember we went to Warsaw? Of course you'll remember, right? We went to uh, co-present at the, at the European Pharmaceutical Market Research Association, big conference, whatever. And the theme of that conference was about patient experiences. And I'm sorry to say, but there wasn't one patient in the room. So I contacted the organizers and I said, well, if you don't mind, <laughs> I could like, I could, introduce you to one patient who's wonderful <laughs> and we made history we made history like it's 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 a no-brainer to us it's not so difficult <laughs> and but i need it's been you don't know the work in the background but to get you to be in that room and to reassure people that you would be the splendid speaker that you were and i mean i know you've made a difference to people in that room i know they got it and that's different. It's that click where you go, huh, it all makes sense. And I find that what I deliver generally and what we co-delivered on that day, but generally what we deliver is something that where people can't really push back and say, hmm, they're just a little bit weird. They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. It's just having presented information where people go, yeah, I totally get it. Of course, if it were me, I'd be behaving exactly in the same way. So it's overcoming this otherness, um, the idea that they are somehow different and they are difficult. And I think once you just shine a light on the rationality behind what people are saying, that it's not irrational. It's not, it's not people with a bee in their bonnets. Like, look, there's a real case here. Let's, let's hear it. And that's all I do. I just say, I've gathered these stories here. Let's hear them, you know. I was just about, I was literally just about to touch on storytelling. So um, fundamentally, and I, I say this a lot, it's, it's combining the head and the heart. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so the head being the data, and, and I've got a statement to make about data in a minute, but it, the head being the data and the heart being the story. Um, on my LinkedIn, I describe myself as a story protector. And people have asked me, oh, what does that mean? I, I looked online, I had one uh, person who asked me to speak say I looked online and I, I couldn't find the description for story pretend I'm like first of all I make up a lot of it. um and secondly actually story protecting comes from my uh vast experience of being uh an advocate whether it be for my race whether it be as a patient a cancer patient whether it be you know as a professional who's trying to get in the room um and story protecting is much more about protecting the principles and the fundamentals of somebody's story. So keeping the integrity of what they've shared so that people who are listening don't um, re-wash or repaint that story because of their own lens. As mm. people, as, as humans, we recognise in people's stories the parts that are most uh, either convenient or familiar to us. That's nobody should get into trouble for that. That's literally just human nature, it's psychology. Yes. But what we want to make sure we're doing is keeping the integrity of the story that then supports the data yes. that then enables us to move forward. And I think, you know, with everything you've just said, that kind of brings us back to the question how can non black people support in the writing of this history? Because fundamentally, you're right, it's about bringing in some of the experiences and stories, keeping the, their integrity and then saying, this is what we did or this is what we can do or, you know, um, I'm not here to be the expert on the experience, but I'm here as an expert in social psychology or whatever it is the person, the ally is doing and moving that forward, I guess. Um, I wanted to make a statement on data. I always have a problem with data, but not because it's not important. It is hugely important, really, really important, especially for telling a story by those who only understand that language, right? Um, mm. But when, uh, but when I'm in so many rooms on so sat on so many boards and that type of thing, I find that people in power depend on the data so much so that they miss the point sometimes and that also in gathering their data they're asking the wrong questions so of course their data is going to tell them what they want to see or something that's easy for them to deal with the data is only as valid as the questions that are asked so if you ask me how am I feeling I'm like oh I'm fine thanks but what you should have been asking is your bad leg how is that? Because if, I'm, if I live with a yeah. bad leg consistently, then I'm just going to stay fine because it's not flared up today. It's still, it always hurts. But what you really want to know is about that bad leg. It's about the way we ask the questions that get us to the real heart of the issue. So um, that's not me discounting data. Data is important. It, qualitative, quantitative, it's, it's all important. But I, I feel like we also need to be getting to the issue of asking the right questions as well what do you, what do you think about that i mean and yeah so from people all often um think about expertise in relation to uh research with people from various minority groups as um just finding putting the right bums on seats, right? Finding these elusive, hard to reach people. Love that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, right? Um, 
and and kind of exotic people, exotic birds that are so hard to reach, right? And I'm like, that's not the issue. That is clearly one of the issues. You might want to want ask yourself, why is it that some people have historically not had a voice and taken part in in research exercises and completing the census and all the stuff that's so you know the labor force survey and all sorts of important sources of data. But for me, it's first and foremost, it's actually identifying the problems and that requires expertise and and lived experience up to a point, but certainly expertise. Um, it's asking the right questions. It's recruiting the right people, for sure. So that's the finding the hard to reach people, but they might not be hard to reach, actually. Maybe people might be perfectly willing to take part in research. It's designing the research in a way that is inclusive, so doesn't rule out some people from taking part, but also inclusive in the in the ways in which the topics are addressed and the in the sensitivity around the issues, the terminology and the assumptions that are made about the, 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 the issues that need to be covered in the research and leave loads of space for people to, ask, to de determine what are the issues that truly matter to them outside of what the original research agenda might have been, right? And it's this kind of, and then it's analyzing in the way that actually picks up on the subtleties of, what people are saying that are, it's not, um, you know, if you do a lot of consumer research, you know, sometimes it's just saying, well, 30% of people like a blue packaging and 20 like red. So that's one thing. But if you do so for the research that I've done with RNIB, so it's not about black history, but it's a good example. This was about understanding, and it could be about race, but how public attitudes towards blind people end up really limiting their life uh, experiences and opportunities and the key to unlocking the, the notion of public attitudes here was to say actually members of the public they're not they're not nasty they don't they're not invested in being against blind people a they lack empathy and b importantly they think of blind people in terms of some archetypes of an innocent, of a victim, of a he a superhero with amazing kind of skills and whatever or in some rare cases, as every man, as an ordinary person like you, like me, just with a little functional deficit that we need to help with. And from the moment, but nobody says in the data, in an interview, in a survey, oh, yes, I think of blind people in terms of the innocent archetype. That's where my expertise comes in. And it's actually looking at this wealth of data and going, ah, actually, I hadn't thought about archetypes for 20 years, but I think that's what's at play here. And this is where it's experience, right? It's, uh, and, and once that's understood, then a whole range of organizational outcomes can unfold as we've seen with RNIB in this case, really. Yeah. So it's about, so to go back, it's about asking the right questions, <laughs> recruiting the right people, engaging them in the right way, analyzing in a way that is actually powerful and makes sense, and then making the right recommendations off the back of that. And all of these components must be aligned to do some really impactful research and change things, really.
and write. Again. Yeah, no, again, this absolutely way. answers. Well, this absolutely answers some of that question. We knew that we wouldn't be able to definitively answer this, right? We're just a t what we're doing here is just a teardrop in the ocean of the the our future and generations to come's past. But fundamentally, I think all of that feeds in again to this question: How can non-black people support the writing of this history? And it's so pertinent that there are so many points at which we all uh, have impact. We all have, you know, autonomy over the things that we choose to do that will either positively or negatively impact the next person, whether it be about race or whether it just be about being kind to somebody as you're as you're passing them to get onto the tube or something. You know, um, this is this is a really this has been a really great conversation about this. And again, I want to reiterate that we haven't come to any conclusions, and we're unlikely to because if we could, if we could in in one episode or come yeah. up with all the answers, the world would be entirely different. Trust me, because I've got the drive and the passion to make it work, and I know you do too. Um, but we're just not that privileged to be able to have all the answers. But I did say to you before that I wanted to ask you a question. So. What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning to do this type of thing? Are there days when it all just feels too heavy and you may not want to do it? Or is this just so innate in you that you bound out of bed to make a difference? It's easier for me to get out of bed and want to make a difference because ultimately I'm, I'm not the one who's traumatized by this. Right, So I don't need to take a break from it all and go, I can't, I just can't deal with this. All I can do is actually it's, I use, in a sense, it doesn't sound good to say that, but I use my anger <laughs> at injustice to get me out of bed. But it's not as painful to me to do it as it would be for somebody whose everyday experience is to be on the receiving end of discrimination. So it, for me, my anger is just a motivation. Mm. And yes, I get out of bed with that. And I start my morning every day with reading the newspapers. And that fires me up for more work to be done. <laughs> it's so funny because we've had conversations about this before where you've been more angry on behalf of me and my people than I have been. Um, and I think you just put, you you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, you don't have to necessarily be traumatized by it. You've got, there's a version of trauma that happens for people who get it and see it and they feel it, they're feeling it on behalf of. But I think when um, the microaggression, microaggressions and all of the things are part of your everyday lived experience, anger exhausts. Mm. Um, and I think that in, in, you know, to wrap up this conversation, a combination of your anger, uh, you know, with balance so that it's not kind of overtaking the issue because that becomes, that stops being allyship and moves into white saviorship. Not that that's what I'm saying, what you're doing, but generally for anyone listening to this who also is like, yeah, I'm angry too. I want them to be careful of that. But I think it's that combination of um, our desire and willingness to step up at times um, not every single time because I think we need to be sensible and not take on every single battle or fight combined with your anger and insight and understanding about what things could be 
or well why can't you have what I have or why can't I have what the the boss man has or you know all of those things all of that combines to write a history that has not yet been written and I think I would love in five or ten years for us to have this same conversation um but flip it Uh, I would also add that uh, in my motivations and getting up out of bed in the morning, there's one very intellectual, maybe, motivation. But I am a social psychologist and a sociologist, so I'm not going to pretend that I'm not. But but um, Michel Foucault, who is the guy who famously wrote something about knowledge is power, um, right? So yeah, I, think, I mean, to, to, to most of us, it's just a, a quote on the internet, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, it matters, but I, I, did, I never knew the author. <laughs> so Michel Foucault, great French intellectual, but what he did uh, and applied that to a range of issues, um, madness, uh, quote unquote, is definitely one of them, but it's what he called an archaeology of knowledge. And he saw the, his role as a philosopher, social scientist, as digging for all the knowledges that had been subjugated because they were eclipsed by the victors writing history, right? And I know that I see my role as digging, as being an archaeologist of in the present, not in the past, but of like bringing different knowledges to light, you know, they don't have to have been, uh, I'm not a historian in that sense, but I'm a sociologist. And I know that in today's world, there are plenty of voices that are subjugated. And and I can use my position, knowledge, whatever, access, power to bring that to light. Thank you so much. Um, I hope this work continues. I hope that our work together continues. I hope that, again, in 10 years, we can have this conversation. Um, Where can the people find you if you want to connect or if they, you know, they want to tap into your insight or your knowledge? Where can they find you? I think LinkedIn is probably the best place, actually. Yeah, excellent. You can get in touch on LinkedIn. I have, uh, um, there aren't too many Dr. Marie-Claude (laughs) specialists, multi-award winning, whatever, insights experts. (laughs) <laughs> exactly let's just put that up again exactly look for it i took this from linkedin so look exactly for this when you're looking for her you, you'll have the right one um mary claude thank you so so much for being here um i know it could have been before we had a conversation it could have been a really vulnerable space because talking about race when you're not from the race can always potentially be a, a minefield but you've been fantastic and I've really enjoyed our conversation. So, um, yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much Shay, for inviting me today, but also your trust and patience with me over the years <laughs> and then generosity. Thank you. No problem. Butterfly, butterfly, pretty butterfly. When I see you flap your wing, I know when it's time for spring. Butterfly, butterfly, pretty butterfly.